0: You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee.
1: And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's May 7th.
0: The U.S. has described what's happening to the mostly Muslim Uyghur population in China as a genocide. Starting in 2016, China launched a campaign of repression, banning Muslim names and forbidding long beards. Then people began to disappear. Four years since China's campaign of repression began, one million Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities, maybe more, have vanished into a sprawling network of camps and prisons in China's far west. Beijing initially denied that these camps existed, and then later claimed that they were facilities for training workers or for re-educating potential radicals, and that they were empty. But open-source satellite data reviewed by RAND researchers showed that most of these facilities appeared to be open and active. The images revealed bright-lit compounds, cars in parking lots, walkways plowed of snow, people on sidewalks, wall after wall of barbed wire— and a sudden rush to build what appeared to be fortified preschools. This imagery has provided a bird's-eye view of what's happening on the ground in the vast Uyghur homeland of Xinjiang. Chinese officials have turned this region into one of the world's most sophisticated surveillance states, bristling with police checkpoints and facial recognition cameras. Rand's Edmund Burke, who worked on the project, said, quote, It's breathtaking how much satellite imagery is publicly available. You see stories about one particular camp or hear one harrowing account from someone who got out of Xinjiang. We realized we could advance those stories and help provide a broader account of what is happening there. To learn more about this project and what satellite observations can reveal, visit the RAND blog.
1: Less than 10% of India's population has received even one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And new cases in India are continuing to explode, overwhelming the country's hospitals, which are running short on medical supplies. The dire situation there, and in other countries, such as Brazil, highlights how uneven vaccine availability is around the world. In fact, more than 40 countries have yet to administer a single shot. To address this problem, America has joined efforts to enable global vaccine access by pledging $4 billion to the COVAX initiative. The U.S. has also loaned 4 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccines to Mexico and Canada. And in the case of India, the U.S. is sending vaccine raw materials to help address the crisis. Also noteworthy, just yesterday, the Biden administration came out in support of suspending patent protections for COVID-19 vaccines, a move that aims to support greater vaccine access in other countries. Such a waiver, however, is not yet a foregone conclusion. Other countries would need to get on board. But according to Rand's Krishna Kumar, the U.S. can do more to ensure that the rest of the world gets vaccinated. For example, it could consider lifting export restrictions on critical components used to make vaccines. From a vaccine production standpoint, the U.S. could consider global needs by producing vaccines that are more suited to lower-income countries. And finally, the U.S. is soon likely to reach the tipping point where vaccine supply outpaces demand, partially due to vaccine hesitancy among Americans. Given this trend, the U.S. could work on allocating surplus vaccines to the COVAX initiative. As the pandemic rages in the unvaccinated world, mutant variants are emerging and finding their way to spread among various countries. Vaccinating a large segment of the global population could be a way to win the race against these variants, saving lives, helping to revive the world economy, and improving vaccine diplomacy.
0: As Evan just mentioned, vaccine hesitancy among Americans continues to be a challenge in the fight against COVID-19. So what can public health officials do to convince people to get vaccinated while also promoting other disease mitigation measures such as mask wearing? A new RAND paper examines this messaging challenge and lays out some strategies that could help. First, it's important to remember that people have different backgrounds, experiences, different comfort levels with risk, and different views on vaccines in general. And so it's unlikely that any single message or messaging strategy would be compelling to all or even a majority of the diverse U.S. population. That's why RAND researchers stress the importance of matching the right message and the right messenger to engage different audiences effectively. In the paper, they also address dealing with the problem of misinformation, which has contributed to vaccine hesitancy. Importantly, they recommend addressing misinformation directly, rather than ignoring it in an attempt to avoid amplifying misinformed views.
1: Over the course of the pandemic, RAND researchers have conducted a series of surveys designed to emphasize the perspectives of low-income, non-white populations. The most recent survey asked participants if it was worth increasing the risk of new COVID-19 infections and deaths for a return to in-person learning or to reopen the economy. 33% of respondents either strongly or somewhat agreed that opening schools for in-person learning was worth increasing health risks. And slightly fewer, 30% of respondents strongly or somewhat agreed that opening the economy was worth the increased risk. These results suggest that there may be some growing support among Americans for reopening both the economy and schools, but it's also important to note that some groups, particularly non-Hispanic black respondents, still remain wary of the increased risks of reopening. It's noteworthy that the groups who have disproportionately shouldered the economic and social burdens of the pandemic— namely communities of color, also appear to be the most concerned about the greater health risks they may face from COVID-19. This insight could be useful for policymakers. For example, if states and school districts hope to address educational inequities that have likely grown over the last year by returning to in-person instruction, then they might need to focus more on addressing the concerns of families who are at greater risk of COVID-19.
0: Just over two weeks ago, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all charges in the murder of George Floyd. In the wake of this conviction, and as we approach one year since Floyd's death, the debate about policing in America continues, as do calls for reforming, reimagining, or disbanding the police. Police may see these calls as existential threats, But according to Rand's Bob Harrison, a retired police chief, there are actually opportunities for progressive change that can work to the advantage of law enforcement. In fact, Rand workshops with law enforcement officials revealed that police themselves largely agree that issues such as mental health and homelessness are better handled by professionals trained in those disciplines rather than police. Harrison notes that even if these shifts in responsibility do happen, the police should focus on regaining public trust. Quote No matter how well a police agency performs to suppress crime and maintain order, unless it has the confidence of the people it serves, it is meaningless. Public confidence is built one contact at a time and by every member of a police staff.
1: RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.